0: The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States.
1: Hello and welcome to the quarterly update podcast for the Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund, where the portfolio managers share their thoughts on the markets and their strategies. My name is Erica Cassell, and today I'm joined by Rick Raskowski, one of the portfolio managers on the fund. Thanks for joining again today, Rick.
2: Thanks, Erica. It's nice to be with you.
1: It's great to be together, especially to discuss such a strong end of the year. What an awesome end of the year for for markets in general, but in particular, fixed income markets really saw a pretty strong rally in the last six weeks of the year. Uh, what do you think were the major catalysts that led to that rally?
2: Yeah, Erica, uh, what a quarter! And you know, I think awesome is a good word for it. And we don't get to use the word awesome too much when talking about <laughs> fixed income, um, but it really was the everything rally: stocks, credit. U.S. Treasuries, and we think the bond market really led the way, with 10-year yields dropping 75 basis points for the quarter, and more than 100 basis points from their peak in October. So, what happened? And, in, in, you know, in short, we would say that investors did a complete 180 from pricing in a higher for longer fed policy to fully embracing a soft landing scenario. And, and honestly, that turnaround could not have come any faster for the bond market because things were looking pretty ugly in early October. Uh, rates were under tremendous pressure. Uh, The economy was showing resilience. Inflation was coming down, uh, but still stubbornly high. And the prevailing narrative in the market was that the Fed had a lot more work to do to slow the economy and cool inflation. And the market started to price in additional Fed hikes. And, you know, adding fuel to the fire, I think bond investors were, were still really reeling from the August U.S. Treasury announcement that the Treasury would need to issue more debt than expected. And with rates then subsequently moving higher, I think investors started doing the math and thinking, hey, uh, with higher government bond yields, that means higher interest expense on the government debt pile. And that means even more treasury issuance down the road. So kind of a doom loop scenario. And at the time, you know, one of the common questions we were getting was, you know, with the big budget deficits for as far as the eye can see, who's going to buy all of the treasury debt? So all of that negativity conspired to push up rates by 40 basis points just in the first few weeks of the quarter. With the 10-year Treasury briefly touching 5%, and that pushed the bond market down 2%. And It it sure looked like bonds were on track for their third consecutive yearly decline. And, you know, at that time, sentiment was terrible, definitely not awesome. Um, But, you know, like a lot of things in financial markets, sentiment got stretched too far too fast, and the subsequent recovery, like usually... Came quicker and and went much further than expected, and I think that the tide really started to turn in early October. We started to get some market-friendly economic data that suggested that maybe the Fed didn't need to be so aggressive. Maybe the soft landing was possible after all. So you know, we see we saw inflation continue to, to decelerate. Um, the economic data showed that the U.S. economy was solid, but at least it wasn't accelerating and we also got a nice boost to sentiment in november when the treasury announced that it would be shifting some of its future bond sales to shorter maturities and that really took a lot of pressure off the longer end of the treasury curve and finally to top it all off the fed fomc meeting in december we would call that definitely dovish um jay powell acknowledged the progress on inflation and the fed dot plot indicated that the fed was now expecting three cuts in 2024 from two previously and even the most hawkish fed member was not expecting any hikes in 24. So, all of this taken together led the market to reprice for more cuts and an easier Fed and you know, Treasuries rallied massively and risk markets also quickly embraced the soft landing narrative. So, yeah, definitely a great quarter for fixed income for sure, but boy, what a ride getting there.
1: And your team's portfolio construction process as far as how you think about the markets, it really does start with that top-down macro view of the market. And last time we were together, the team maintained that we were, or we remained, really, in this late expansion phase of the credit cycle. Does this team think we're still in this late expansion phase?
2: And we think that late cycle is still the right call. It's It's been a unique and fast-moving cycle, for sure, with COVID fiscal spending boom, rising inflation, labor shortages, and a Fed policy that went from super easy to restrictive at a near record pace. but with the excess savings from fiscal starting to dwindle and labor markets coming back into balance, we think the economy will revert to a more fundamentally slower pace of growth. Our base case is that we remain in late cycle and transition to something not quite soft landing the market's priced in we'd call it a bumpy landing where the lagged effects of monetary tightening flow through to the economy, and risk markets come under some pressure. A downturn is not our most likely case um you know, I think if we look around. Right now, the economy still has momentum. We're getting you know, pretty solid numbers and so far this year. The consumer in aggregate is in pretty good shape. Uh, real incomes are growing. Um, but we do believe that the r- outlook carries a higher than normal risk of a downturn, as we still need to contend with the lagged effects of previous monetary tightening. But we do think that the risks of a downturn are probably for later this year. And For now, we continue to view late cycle with some turbulence as the most likely outcome.
1: Now, shifting gears a little bit and looking at the portfolio and its performance through the fourth quarter, the Corpus bond fund, again, maybe to not overuse the word, but it was an awesome fourth quarter uh The fund was up roughly seven point two five percent outperforming the bench by over forty basis points. Could you talk about you know what the primary drivers or detractors of performance for for the fund was
2: yes a a nice quarter for our investors, uh, strong absolute, and relative returns that's always our favorite combination. And uh, but usually we we see a number of different performance drivers in any given quarter. But this time around, it was really dominated by duration and curve positioning. The funds longer than benchmark duration benefited from the sharp drop in interest rates for the quarter, and the funds overweight to the belly of the curve, that is, the five to ten year part of the curve, benefited from a modest bull steepening of the Treasury curve. High yield was also a positive as high yield spreads narrowed significantly. Um, There really wasn't much to speak of on the negative side of the ledger, some modest drag from security selection and MBS, but overall returns and relative performance were strong and driven mostly by duration positioning.
1: And how is your, as far as base case outlook, um, you know, of course, we talked about, you know, where we are in the credit cycle, but, uh, you know, within that, there are some indicators that have kind of changed so i mean how is your your base case shifted from the end of the third quarter to the end of the fourth quarter
2: we have significantly pulled back our expectations for higher for longer fed even though we got a little bit of a whiff of that scenario over the past couple of days with some hotter than expected inflation and labor market data but we do have a high level of conviction that inflation is coming down and the trend is down and that the fed will be able to ease and even if rates do back up, we don't see a return to last year's peak in rates.
1: Thank you. And as you mentioned, you know the Fed continues to be the focus in a lot of conversations we've been having recently, uh, with many speculating as far as you know when the Fed might start to cut interest rates in 2024. What's your team's outlook for potential Fed action for the year?
2: Yeah, there there is disagreement between what the Fed expects for rate cuts this year and what the market expects. But that's not entirely unusual, and just in the past few weeks, that gap has narrowed a bit. So right now, the Fed projects three cuts for this year, and the market expects five to six, and that's come down from six to seven just a few weeks ago. The market's also pricing in just over a 50% chance that the first cut comes in March, but again, these odds have come down from about 90% recently, Um, and that's really been on the back of stronger uh, economic data that we've seen. So where do we stand? Well, we're closer to the market six than the Fed's three, but we think that the cuts start later than March, probably in the May time frame. One thing we hear a lot is that for the Fed to cut five or six times this year, something bad will have to be happening or something has to break. And the implication there is that deflation by itself, even if we get it, will not be enough for the Fed to act. We don't agree with that, and that's not what the Fed has told us. If you look at the December summary of economic projections or the SEP report that the Fed publishes, the Fed's projecting a significant policy evening without a material slowing in the economy as long as inflation is moving toward target. So the Fed is projecting over 200 basis points of easing in the nef- next one to two years, even with expectations of the economy growing at a trend rate and the unemployment rate not getting above its long-term natural rate of 4%. So the big question, is inflation getting to the Fed's target? And we think that it is. Although the PCE price deflator, which is the Fed's preferred measure, is running over 3% year-on-year, if you look at it on a six-month seasonally adjusted annual rate, and that's how the Fed focuses on it, uh, PCE is already running close to their 2% target. and We expect that trend to continue. In particular, we think there is significant room for shelter costs, which is a big component in, in the CPI and the PCI inflation measures. We think that can continue to come down. Some of the real-time rental price indicators that we look at have softened recently, and, we, and these tend to feed through to these inflation gauges with a lag. So we still think that there could be some positive inflation news going forward. So in sum, we're expecting Fed cuts this year close to the market expectations. We don't think that bad things have to happen for the Fed to deliver on rate cuts, but we do need to see inflation continue to move to the Fed's target, and we think that it will.
1: Now, switching gears a little bit, looking at positioning of the portfolio um, and taking a look first at the core sectors of the portfolio, the more ag-like sectors. Have you made any adjustments in your allocations among these sectors, given uh, your your current outlook?
2: Yeah, no major changes in our core positioning from a broad sector level, but a, a few things worth noting. Uh, we have reduced the Treasury allocation marginally as part of our strategy to cut duration, uh, we remain underweight investment in great corporates as we don't think that the sector overall is attractive given our cycle views and where we think the balance of risks lie. Um, but we haven't given up entirely on the IG corporate market. We did find opportunities to add in the new issue market, some bonds with attractive new issue concessions in the banking, auto, and in emerging markets. Um, but that add to the sector was modest because against that we sold some short maturity high quality corporate bonds and rolled those into Higher yielding three-month T-bills. We like that trade a lot. Finally, mortgage-backed securities always an important sector because it's around 27% of the uh, Bloomberg Ag. And as a reminder, these are government-backed or, or sponsored mortgage pass-throughs uh, issued by Ginny May and Fannie Mae. These bonds don't have credit risk, but they do have prepayment risk, and they're they're influenced by interest rate volatility. And you know, not surprisingly, MBS has been a roller coaster ride given the the high rate volatility that we've seen in the market. But like other asset classes, MBS rallied strongly in Q4. So when we look at MBS, we, we think that it has good fundamental characteristics, but potentially challenging technicals. On the positive side, mortgage durations have extended and prepayment risk is low. Uh, the average homeowner has a mortgage rate in the threes and many a lot lower, while prevailing 30-year mortgages are running around 7%. So refinancing activity is low as people are staying in their homes. That's a you know the so-called lock-in effect. But you know, prepayment risk has inched up a little as rates have come down, but still, MBS durations are running around six years, and that's compared with lows of one to two years in 2020. So the way we look at it, MBS is trading more like treasuries with some incremental spread. So that's, a, that's positive. Against that, though, there is a technical backdrop that we think is less favorable, and mainly that comes from the demand side. Demand has shrunk from the traditional buyers, which are banks and the Fed. Banks have been reluctant to buy MBS because they're already sitting on large unrealized losses on their bond books, and are really loath to take on more duration risk right now. And the Fed's been reducing because they're winding down MBS on their balance sheets. So banks and the Fed used to account for as much as 75, 80% of the demand for MBS in the 2021-22 period, but that's dropped down to the single-digit percentages. So you know, we prefer right now to play MBS from the tactical side adding on weakness, selling it to strength, which we did recently, and right now the fund's positioned slightly below bench weight.
1: And you alluded to this a little bit with your comment on, on trimming some treasury exposure. But post-Q4 rally, how are you viewing duration positioning within this portfolio?
2: Yeah, okay we, we continue to position the fund long duration relative to the benchmark. But it, as we've noted, we have reduced that long position from last year's highs given the year-end rally in rates and also with the market pricing in our expectations for Fed cuts this year. You know, we still like the risk-reward of being long duration because we believe duration works in two out of our three most likely cases. It works in our base case of what we call the bumping landing, you know, with inflation converging to 2% also works at a downturn, which would bring even deeper Fed cuts and even lower rates in our base case. Now, you know, duration is not going to work in the higher for longer Fed and inflation scenario on something that we saw last year. And as we said, we got a little bit of a touch of that this year. But we don't see that as persistent and don't place a high likelihood of on a full-blown higher for longer scenario, given our positive outlook for underlying inflation trends. So if we see a further backup in rates, that could give us an opportunity to reload by boosting duration.
1: Thank you. And now looking towards some of the plus sectors of the portfolio, some of those more tactical alpha drivers your team will use, um, what are the positions you're liking the most? Um, and have there been any areas you're, you're looking or, or waiting to add to?
2: Yeah, we, you know, right now we're at the lower end of the range for our, our plus sectors. You know, Broadly speaking, we're cautious on risk markets as we don't think the valuations, especially in credit, are offering tremendous value given what we believe is elevated downturn uh, risk relative to history, but again, you know, downturns not our base case. Um, you know, so at the same time, we're not actively reducing risk in the plus sectors. You know, we continue to hold a, around a four and a half position at high yield. Now, that's on the lower end of our historical range, and that has come down slightly during the quarter. But that was mainly due to upgrades, notably Ford, for example. Ford was fully upgraded from high yield to investment grade, and you know, despite the rally in high yield spreads, we still think there's decent value. Um, high yield benefits from low, albeit. You know, slowly rising default rates, and also a technical tailwind from low supply. Um, if you look at the high yield market, it's actually shrunk in size last year, as so a lot of the new issuance has been diverted to the bank loan or private debt markets. Another out of benchmark plus sector we like is CLOs, especially on the higher rated single A and above tranches, which you know we believe have low credit risk, good liquidity, attractive yields, and finally you know we still like our non dollar positions in the government bonds of Mexico and Uruguay we both we view both of these uh as long term structural stories Mexico as a beneficiary from reshoring and Uruguay as a country with solid fundamentals and a stable government and you know both are delivering yields in the 9 to 10% range
1: all right. Thank you so much, Rick. And one last question to end on here, you know, because if we think about the last two years, you know, it really was inflation and, and interest rate movement that has driven a lot of the, the market volatility that we've seen. What do you think as far as what potential major risks or are, are drivers of market movement are going to be in 2024?
2: Yeah, um, as always, there's certainly a lot of risk out there, and many are, are front and center right now, especially in you know the ge- geopolitical realm. Um, you know, I think the situation in the Middle East, obvious, uh, you know, immediate situation. Um, also, have China, Taiwan, and of course, an election here at home. These situations are, you know, very difficult to handicap. Uh, But it does seem to us that the market is not pricing in any material negative outcome. So we believe that the market is vulnerable to any unexpected shocks that come out of this area. And it does support, we think, our more conservative stance on risk markets. You know, I think at more of a a micro level, we're thinking about credit markets. And I, I think the big question is, you know, do companies start changing their financial policies to favor stockholders over bondholders? You know, coming into last year, I I think almost everyone was expecting a downturn, and and I think that that led to very conservative management by uh, CEOs, companies not taking uh, on a lot of debt, building up cash, uh, just being very conservative. That's always good for credit investors. But now this year, with the view being that a recession is very unlikely, you know, do we start to get a reversal of that? Do companies start becoming more aggressive with their balance sheets, more M&A, more leverage activity, more buybacks? And you know, We're starting to see a little of that uh, so far this year, uh, higher M&A, in, you know, for example, in the energy in- industry. And we do think it's something that's worth monitoring, and we're working very closely with our research uh, credit analysts on that you know i think the big question for investors is, is will bonds serve as that offset to of their equity market exposure you know does does the 60 40 portfolio still work and, and that really hasn't always been the case over the past few years because prices of of stocks and bonds have been positively correlated and you know i think you know what what's going to change that and I, I do think that it comes back to inflation but really specifically where that inflation comes from and i think the po- positive correlation from stocks and bonds happens more when inflation is supply-driven. and That's what we've seen with supply chain bottlenecks, with shortages in labor markets. That tends to be a situation that drives up inflation, drives up bond yields, and is negative for markets. So we need to get back to an environment more where inflation is driven on the demand side, where a good economy spills over perhaps into concern about rising inflation, but that allows stocks to go up and perhaps bonds to go down. And conversely, economic growth weakens. Recessionary fears start to come in. Bonds should rally even if stocks don't do so well. So we do think we're starting to shift from supply-driven inflation to, to more traditional demand-driven inflation. So we do think that that bodes well for the 60-40 portfolio construct going forward and that bonds will act as more of an offset to equity market exposure going forward.
1: Well, I want to thank you so much, Rick, for joining me today. And thank you for your time. Um, And for listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Core Plus Bond Fund and about how Rick and his team run the strategies, please reach out to your NetTexas wholesaler or visit us on our website at im.netexas.com
0: important information standard performance as a percentage for loomis sales core plus bond fund as of december 31st 2023 class y three months 7.28 percent year to date 6.12 percent one year 6.12 percent three years 3.00%, percent five years 1.93 percent 10 years 2.36 percent class a at nav three months 7.28 percent year to date 1 year, 5.91%, 3 years, negative 3.22%, 5 years, 1.69%, 10 years, 2.12%, Class A with 4.25% maximum sales charge, 3 months, 2.68%, year to date, 1.44%, 1 year, 1.44%, 3 years, negative 4.61%, 5 years, 0.81%, 10 years, 1.67%, Bloomberg US, Aggregate Bond Index, 3 months, 6.82%, year to date, 5.53%, 1 year, 5.53%, 3 years, negative 3.31%, 5 years, 1.10%, 10 10 years, 1.81%, 30-day SEC yield, why, subsidized equals 4.50%, 30-day SEC yield, why, unsubsidized equals 4.48%, performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, visit iam.netixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. Top 10 holdings for the Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund as of December 31, 2023. U.S. Treasury Notes. 4.125% November 15, 2032. 2.9% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury Bonds. 2.000% November 15, 2041. 2.5% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury Notes. 3.125% August 31, 2029. 2.3% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury Notes. 3.375% May 15, 2033 2.2% of portfolio U.S. Treasury notes 3.875% September 30, 2029 1.9% of portfolio Federal National Mortgage Association pool BF 0653 2.500% 0301 2062 1.8% of portfolio U.S. Treasury notes 3.500% February 15, 2033, 1.8% of portfolio, Federal National Mortgage Association, Pool BF0618, 2.500%, March 1, 2062, 1.6% of portfolio, U.S. Treasury bonds, 1.750%, August 15, 2041, 1.5% of portfolio, Uruguay Government International Bonds, 8.250%, May 21, 2031, 1.4% of portfolio, the portfolio is actively managed and holdings are subject to change, there is no guarantee the fund continues to invest in the securities referenced. As of June 30, 20. 20- the fund held only three different currencies. Gross expense ratio: 0.49%. Class Y share: 0.74%. Class A share: Net expense ratio: 0.49%. Class Y share: 0.74%. Class A share. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and/or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions, once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 31, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios and/or yields may be the same. The 30-day SEC yield is a standardized calculation calculated by dividing the net investment income per share for the 30-day period by the maximum offering price per share at the end of the period and annualizing the result. Unsubsidized 30-day SEC yield is calculated using the gross expenses of the fund. Gross expenses do not include any fee waivers or reimbursement. A subsidized 30-day SEC yield reflects the effect of fee waivers and expense reimbursements. The SEC yield is not based upon distributions of the fund and actual income distributions may be higher or lower than the 30-day SEC yield amounts. During periods of unusual market conditions, the fund's 30-day SEC yield amounts may be materially higher or lower than its actual income distributions. The Bloomberg US Aggregate Bond Index is an unmanaged index that covers the U.S., dollar-denominated, investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable bond market of SEC-registered securities. The index includes bonds from the Treasury, government-related, corporate, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized mortgage-backed securities sectors. Fixed-income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit. Interest rate. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall. Inflation and liquidity. Mortgage-related and asset-backed securities are subject to the risks of the mortgages and assets underlying the securities. Other related risks include prepayment risk which is, the risk that the securities may be prepaid, potentially resulting in the reinvestment of the prepaid amounts into securities with lower yields. Below investment grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. Foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Inflation-protected securities move with the rate of inflation and carry the risk that in deflationary conditions, when inflation is negative, the value of the bond may decrease. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit iam.notixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of January 2024 and may change Based on market and other conditions, Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC, fund distributor, member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis Sales and Company, L.P. are affiliated. P.O.D. 25 December 2023. Ad tracks 1468912331. Expiration date April 30th 2024.